to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 44 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I hope this conversation inspires you to feel, function and relate better. As a speaker, nothing beats the buzz that comes with presenting to a live audience. Zoom and Teams are a great plan B, but nothing beats real people in real rooms talking about topics that really matter. Live events are a wonderful opportunity to remove ourselves from the everyday stresses of life and connect with other people that understand, other people that get it, and other people that are looking to do things in new ways. So I've decided to choose courage over comfort and run my first ever live event this term. I have never done something like this before, and I'm really looking forward to creating a space for big-hearted humans to connect, share, laugh, and learn. My first event will be in Melbourne, so make sure you've subscribed to my Thought of the Week newsletter to be the first to know all the details. Now let's get on with today's show. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Paige Williams. Paige is an author, researcher, and PhD in organizational behavior. She uses a potent blend of neuroscience, psychology, and her own 20-plus years of leadership experience to help others see the rules they need to break in order to break through and lead themselves, their teams, and their organizations to thrive. Her latest book, Own It, Honoring and Amplifying Accountability, explores why accountability is so vital to access and how to cultivate it in ourselves and others. In this conversation, we discuss the transformative power of accountability, why a lack of accountability can lead to disconnection and underperformance, how we can thrive one choice point at a time, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Paige Williams. Paige, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much, Meg. It's great to be here with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I talk about accountability a lot and every time I say the word, people have this look on their face like she didn't just say the A word, did she? I know. I hear you. I feel you. And that's exactly why we need to have a really good, deep conversation about it. And so how did you get so interested in helping people take more accountability for their lives and their work? Well, it's interesting, Meg. About two and a half years ago, pre-COVID, just pre-COVID, I wrote a book called Becoming Anti-Fragile. And anti-fragile is such a beautiful concept. It's this idea of rather than disruption and change and challenge depleting us and kind of breaking us, how is it that we can use those experiences to become better in some way? Now, the original idea was conceived by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he applied it to economic and political systems. And as I discovered his work, I started to think about it in terms of human systems. So how is it that leaders, teams and organisations can become more anti-fragile? But as you think about anti, anti-fragility, the, the kind of other side of the coin is well, what makes and keeps us fragile? Because until we address that, there's a real definite ceiling to how anti-fragile we can become. And so as I kind of reflected on my own fragility and anti-fragility, and I looked around and thought about the leaders and teams that I'd worked with at very, very senior levels, but also then my friends and my family, 
I recognize that one of the things that most often makes and keeps us fragile are issues with accountability. They're the things that mean that we don't make progress. They're the things that mean that we're not really clear what we need to do, but we're not having the conversation to get clear on it. And so in, I almost feel like I wrote the prequel in my recent book, Own It, to Becoming Anti-Fragile, because I really believe that until we've got accountability in place, everything else is, is, is not entirely wasted, but it's not as effective as it could be. And there's a far more realistic way that we can make progress that means that we can be our best and be in joy and be productive as we do that. And that's why I'm so excited about this topic because it really can be the bridge to where we are, to where we want to go. Absolutely. And I say to all the, the senior leaders, the teams that I work with now, before you do anything else, And whether that is a a journey towards more anti-fragility or whether it's a transformational change program or whether in schools it's thinking about how are we going to bring up performance in a particular area or think about student engagement in a particular area, until we've got accountability in place, there's no doubt that we've got kind of like a leaky bucket in terms of our effort and our energy and our focus and our attention, and most importantly, our time, because accountability means that the bucket becomes watertight. It means that we are most effective in where we place our attention, our energy, and our focus in order to achieve the progress that we want to make together. And no one wants to be going around in a leaky boat, do they? Absolutely not. You know, you're paddling really fast, and yet still you're not making that forward progress that you want to. And just some, there are some really simple things we can do to to begin with in order to help us get clear around accountability and remove what I call the fog, the fog of confusion that's often in place. Do you think sometimes people hide behind the fog of confusion? I think that there can be certainly situations where people use a lack of clarity to their advantage. And certainly as I speak to leaders about this, and even as I think about it in terms of my own parenting, kindly and supportively removing any wiggle room is a really, really effective way to lead. Whether you're leading, you know, your family, I have two teenage girls and they have been through the accountability journey with me as I've written the book. And this idea of lovingly removing wiggle room so that we're really clear we're really clear what the expectations are on both sides and we've we've double checked on those and we're absolutely clear on what the consequences are if either side of the expectations that we've agreed on aren't met and by removing that fog you know it, it really does mean that there if you like if there there is nowhere to hide and and it's an important point this Megan it's it's good that we're talking to this early because bringing in clarity of expectations bringing in clarity of consequences and removing the wiggle room doesn't always mean there's a happy ending to the story, right? And you you kind of alluded to this when you suggested that, you know, maybe some people hide behind it. And, and you're right, once you clear up the fog, there is nowhere to hide. And that doesn't always mean that people will willingly respond to the call to account that you're making for them. And so there can be some pretty chewy conversations to be had once you get clear and once you then need to follow through on the consequences of people perhaps not responding to that call to account that you've made. Yeah, and that's something that I notice time and time again, Paige, is that 
when people do the work with me, they start to get their energy back. And then the next part is, wow, now I'm starting to see things that I've not been able to see for a long time. And now I have to make some uncomfortable decisions. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, the first one of the things that I talk about in the book is the the first thing that we need to do is own what's ours to own. I call it the own it mindset. And this is before we can invite others into their accountability. We really need to do kind of an audit of our own. You know, what's mine to own in whatever the circumstances that, that we're kind of challenged with right now? You know, what action can I take right now to help unstick this in some way or make progress in some way and that might be inviting a conversation or or raising a flag that hey what's going on here isn't okay or isn't going as we expected it to and that's the immediate action and then what can I do to make sure we don't get here again so what's kind of the more sustained action that I can take or that I can put in place so that we don't end up in this cycle of underperformance that's actually being driven by issues with accountability. So putting that own it mindset in place is super important before we then are able to have conversations with others around what's theirs to own, because quite often not everything sits on our shoulders. There is very legitimately a role for others in whatever the progress or the performances that we're looking to deliver together. So when it comes to accountability, what really is it? Ah, this is such a good question because once we get this sorted, often when I'm taking like half day or one day programs, we get to this point in the teaching and I say, right, if you take nothing else away from our time together today, just use this one thing and I guarantee it will have an impact. So there are three, let me, let me just backtrack a little bit. I, I see that there are three main issues with accountability in organizations and teams um, right now. So the first is confusion. And we're going to clear that up with our language, one aspect of it in just a moment. Because we've got confusion over what we mean by accountability, the second thing is that we don't feel confident. We've got concern over actually having accountability conversations because we're not sure if the way that we're doing it and the way that we're interpreting it is the same as that team leader over there or it's the same in that business unit over there or in that different department within the school over there. And so there's this concern, this risk, that actually we become the bad guy because we're being holding people to account far more kind of rigorously than elsewhere in the organisation or the school. And because we've got the concern and we don't have confidence in our ability to have conversations, we don't create a context or a culture in which accountability is just the norm, where it's just the way that we do our work together and everyone's okay with it because it's really clear and effective and there's nothing wrong with having these accountability conversations. So those three C's, the confusion that leads to concern, which means we don't create a context of accountability, there you can see they kind of intertwine and that's what creates this fog that we've already spoken to. So the first thing that we need to clean up and clear up is is this confusion. And one of the ways that we need to do that is by getting really specific in our language because, you know, as I've been a leader in organisations and I've worked in schools for over a decade and as I work alongside school leaders and other leaders and in teams, I hear that there are, are words like responsibility, accountability, ownership, and they're used interchangeably. 
And so it's not surprising that there's confusion over what does it actually mean. And so as I did the research for the book, I went to the academic literature and there are lots and lots of definitions in there, but none of them were kind of relevant and real enough for me to be able to go, yeah, that's the one that, we're, that that's going to be useful for leaders and teams to use every day. So I actually went to project management and went to something called the RACI framework, R-A-C-I. And in project management, that's one of the kind of really well-used integrated tools in, in managing teams and coordinating work effectively. And the R and the A of the RACI stands for responsibility and accountability. And they discern it really pragmatically. So that's what I went with for the book. So accountability is the buck stops here. And the way that I explain that is if there were a, a royal commission into whatever the work is that your team does and you're the leader of that team, then you have accountability for what goes on in that team. You're the person in the stand at the Royal Commission kind of taking questions around the operation of the team. But it's easy to see that as a leader, whilst you might have accountability or there might be a a person who has accountability, they're not the the person that does all the arms and legs work. And that's what responsibility is. Responsibility is the work is done here. So accountability, the bucks here, responsibility, the work is done here. And that's as far as RACI takes it. I believe it needs to go one step further. So clearly, responsibility speaks to delegation of task. That makes complete sense. But as you delegate a task, as you assign a responsibility to someone, I believe it's absolutely imperative that you make clear the accountability that goes along with that task. So let's say, for example, we're putting together a report that goes out to the school community about wrapping up the year. What have we done this year? And, you know, the principal ultimately may have accountability for making sure that gets out to the school community, but clearly is going to delegate sections to senior school, middle school, junior school, different departments, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as those responsibilities are delegated, the accountability in terms of the time frame, the type of information required, the where it needs to be gathered from, if that needs to be specified, the length of the report, how many pictures can be included as a maximum and a minimum. Like we're getting specific about, yes, you've got the task to do and here are the accountabilities, the, if you like, the deliverables. What is the buck stops here that goes along with that responsibility? And if we do that, if we just do that one thing, use language that's specific like that, and then cascade accountability throughout a team so that as we delegate a responsibility, we make sure we make clear the accountabilities that go with it. That is going to clear up so much of the fog. I've seen it happen. And as you're speaking, that's what's coming to my mind, literally a fog clearing instead of being in environments where there is so much fog or things don't happen in the spaces where they need to happen. So, for example, you have a meeting, you're sitting there, everybody's at the meeting, but we know that in a lot of cultures the real meeting happens in the corridor. That's the meeting after the meeting. And you said this beautifully in your book. I'd love to read you this line that just sprung to me as an experience that I've been in working within schools and now witnessing in different environments. And you're just talking about how, 
executive meetings can go. In executive meetings, they avoided openly discussing the rifts in the team, each of them wearing a thin mask of politeness while being plainly passive-aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, if we think about what are some of the symptoms that might indicate that you've got accountability issues going on in your culture and this culture of politeness, I call it plastic fantastic, where we sit in meetings and we all nod and smile and we go, yeah, 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 and we all agree and we go, yeah, I'm, yeah, put my, my name against that action and blah, 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 blah. and then we know that as soon as we walk out the door, absolutely nothing's going to be done and no one's going to be called to account over the fact that nothing's been done. And so we've got this culture of politeness and, you know, thinly veiled. We all know what's going on. And then as new people come into the organisation, they quickly see that, oh, okay, that's the way things are done around here and they slot in because we know it's a very basic human need to feel a sense of belonging and to want to kind of understand how to think, how are things done around here and, and, and normalise into those. And so this, this kind of culture of politeness, thinly veiled, no one's having the conversation that they need to have around why things aren't being done. And the big risk in this right now, particularly, and particularly in schools and healthcare, where we know we've got a talent drain already, is that the people that are most impacted by this are actually the people who are willing to be accountable. They're engaged. They're on board. They're happy for you to call them to account and get stuff done and make progress. And when they see this happening around them and they realise that actually it doesn't make any difference if I show up and do what I've said I'm going to do because no one's going to thank me for it and no one's going to you know, ask me why not if I don't. These are the people that we want to keep, but that actually this fog of accountability, they become disengaged. They quite frankly become fairly pissed off and they leave. Yes, that is so true. And I have seen that time and time again where people are doing really meaningful work, really impactful work, and they're looking to their leaders for some leadership and some accountability. They're looking for it. Like, stop telling me what I want to hear. Stop making all the right noises and give me some more. Give me some action, some strategy. That's right. And, and it's those people who are actually willingly stepping into their accountability now. They're the diamonds. You really want to keep those people to do that is to clear up the fog it makes this, this work and this is where I you know as I spoke to a few minutes ago it doesn't always ending a happy ending right but what it does make clear are those people who are prepared to get on the accountability bus own what's theirs to own not more we're not asking people to take on things that are not theirs to own but to own what's theirs to own and to ask for support when it's needed and to understand the consequences of following through and not following through on the expectations they've agreed to. And so, you know, this is important work in terms of when it's, a, when it's at a cultural level, I often speak to it as listerining the culture, like we're really cleaning up the culture here because what we're encouraging and inviting are clear and clean conversations that are professional about the work that we need to do together, but equally are compassionate and kind and offer support and invite people to be the best version of themselves. You'll know in the book, I talk about accountability being an act of love. And I, I truly believe that that's the kind of paradigm shift. hate using that term, but I think it's appropriate here. We're using, you know, accountability has been so punitive 
in the past. It's kind of been a punishment for that comes too late after the horse has bolted and we have these really uncomfortable conversations about what should have been done, what could have been done and why didn't you? And it's really not surprising that we feel defensive in those kinds of situations because it's a psychological threat to our status, to our feelings of connection, and we respond in that way. And we need to fundamentally flip the accountability coin so that actually it becomes something that sets us up for for success. It actually comes from a place of support, a place of love, a place of belief in what's possible from you, the person I'm asking for accountability from, and from us working together in partnership in making the progress and and reaching the goals that we, we want to achieve together. So this accountability as an act of love is a really important part of how I feel we can reset accountability so that actually clearing the fog doesn't become an act of war, it becomes an act of love. Because what we're doing is we're saying, no, that's not yours to own. No, you let go of that, but make sure you own this because this really is yours to own. And we're going to be asking you to deliver on those. And we're going to be clear about the consequences of if you do, the contribution it will make. And if you don't, the consequences for others, for our school, our students, and ultimately for you as an individual. Yes. When I read in your book that accountability was an act of love, my whole body went, Yes, it really is because it's a real difference between that short-term win and that real compliance, which you've spoken about, versus that really long-term inspired action and a commitment to something that we're working towards together with a real clear vision of how we can contribute. And you know what, Meg, the thing is when I I work with a lot of schools and when I work with leading teachers and teachers in the classroom and I put this into a student learning context, And I say to them, and and, and we posit this scenario whereby, you know, what would happen if you did the homework for your students? And they'd be like, well, no, that's no good because they don't get any learning and they don't get any any kind of sense of having to deliver things and da-da-da. I said, exactly. So you get this. You get this in your teaching student role. And yet somehow when it becomes adult to adult, we, we step out of that kind of, well, hang on, there's no... There's no value in me doing this to you so that you feel under attack because then you're kind of going to move away and get very defensive and you're just going to shrink. Like when people feel that they're having accountability done to them and it's being used as this act of war, then what we do is we retreat and we play in a smaller and smaller space so that we can feel safe. Now, when we've got challenge and uncertainty and we need creativity and innovation, Believe me, that all goes out the window because we're just going smaller and smaller so we can stay safe. And equally, if I do it for you, if I do your homework for you so that you meet the deadline, then you're not learning to chew on the reality of what it means to be asked to be accountable for your own actions and uh, what it means to be asked to meet a particular deadline or a particular standard of work. And so to do it to or to do it for is, is not what this is about. It's about an accountability partnership. And I talk about what it means to partner in accountability so that whether you're asking for it as the accountor or being asked for it as the accountee, it's about that mutually respectful relationship that's about enabling success on both sides. And moving away from that model of constantly over-functioning on behalf of others while others under-function. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things I speak to quite strongly in the book 
is that we've got, because we have a lot of matrix structures, and this is particularly true in schools, where you'll have, you know, you'll have a, a role in your department because you teach a particular subject, but then you might have a role in the co-curricular programme as well. And you might have a role looking after a particular year level or a form group or something. And so there are these matrix structures and those structures can really add to the density of the accountability fog because you've got multiple reporting lines. And what that means is there isn't clear sight of all the accountabilities that an individual or a group of individuals might be being asked for. And again, if I flip this into a student scenario, then you can imagine, and I've had this with my own children, where they say, I can't believe it, we've got really significant assignments to be handed in on Thursday for these five different subjects and they're all due on the same day and I, and I'd say to them well that's just because no one has sight of the horizontal experience of you as a student what we're looking at is you know what do I need to do as a year seven teacher in English in terms of curriculum so if we take that and we can understand how that happens in schools the same thing happens when we've got matrix reporting structures with team members and with kind of leaders in that we've got multiple responsibilities and we don't realise that actually this one person or this small group of people is being drawn on in an unreasonable and unrealistic way in terms of what's being asked of them. And so when we move into this understanding that actually accountability isn't a punitive conversation, it's a setting up for success conversation, then it means that we're more able to say, hey, can I just share with you, I've got all of these things being asked of me right now. Can we have a conversation about where my priorities are? Can we agree them together? Because I know I can't deliver all of those in the time frame that's being given to me right now. So let's agree which ones are the priority and then I'll move forward on that basis. So these are really clear grown-up conversations that simply aren't happening right now because we've got this fog and we've got this concern that if we do have them, in some way a relationship is going to be fractured. Yes, and so many listeners listening to this will know that feeling within a school of being stretched. Generally, the people who are listening, they're proactive, they're doing all the things, they might be coordinating, they might be also running an event, they might be doing this, they might be doing that. And taking the time to really look at it, look at your capacity, and then share that with your manager, share what you're doing, make the invisible work, that invisible load that you carry yeah. very visible. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of things with that. One is that that's part of what's yours to own, right? If you are feeling overwhelmed, if you are feeling like there is too much on my plate, I'm being asked for too many things from too many different people, unless you make it visible, we're in that five assignments next Thursday because English didn't speak to maths, didn't speak to geography, didn't speak to science, didn't speak to media studies, right? And, and that happens in schools. That's the reality of it. But unless we make that visible by actually sharing, hey, this is what's on my plate right now, and I know that I'm not going to be able to deliver all of that, so can we talk about where you want my priorities? So this isn't about initially saying who else can do this. It's about let's talk about how we prioritise this work, right? Now, that's the bit that's, that's each of ours to own. And if we're in a situation where we're feeling like there's too much, 
flagging it and having a conversation about it is what's ours to own. The second thing of this is that because we've got these these kind of multiple accountabilities, there's actually a learning in this in that, you know, maybe they maybe there's a realization that because it hasn't been flagged before, oh, we need to not schedule these things at the same time. We need to separate these things by two weeks. But because we haven't felt able to have the conversation because we feel that in some way our social status is going to be threatened if we actually acknowledge that there's too much here for me, then, then there's that learning opportunity is also lost. So we, we create this cycle of underperformance because we're not actually flagging when what's being asked of us is, is simply unrealistic. Yes, this cycle of underperformance. And what comes to my mind is a lot of people that I work with are quite good at accountability when it comes to that external piece doing things for other people, but when it comes to accountability for themselves and taking care of themselves, knowing the buck stops with them when it comes to their own well-being, they really struggle. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, because in, in Own It, I talk about the drama triangle. Now, work of Stephen Cartman, a sociologist, and in the drama triangle, we can take one of three positions. One is the victim where you're at the bottom and, and you feel like you're feeling over, overwhelmed, you're feeling help, you're kind of life is happening to you. And so you're, you're feeling kind of that you don't have much agency at all. But up at the top of the triangle are two other positions. One is the persecutor. And this is the person or this is when we're in the mindset of pointing fingers at other people. So it's everyone else's fault. They should have done that. He should have done that. This should have happened. And, it, you know, it's nothing to do with me. It's everyone else. So that's the persecutor. And quite often the persecutor is pointing a finger at the victim who's kind of going, well, hang on. And then up in the other corner of the triangle is the rescuer, right? Now, the rescuer is equally disenabling for the victim because what they do is they come in and they take over and they kind of save the victim from whatever pressure the persecutor is, is pointing at them. But they disable them just as much because it comes back to that thing of they don't, the victim doesn't ever get to chew what's theirs to chew, doesn't ever get to own what's theirs to own. And the thing that I think is really important, you know, we can each of us take any one of those three positions in the drama triangle and we can move between them really quickly as well. But we will often have a home spot where, you know, our tendency is to, is to be a rescuer. Our tendency is once there becomes some tension, then we'll come in and kind of save it to diffuse the tension. Or we might have a tendency to, to look to others and go, well, why haven't you done that? Why haven't you done that before we take on what's our stone? Or we might have a tendency to go, oh, I can't. No, there's nothing. I can't do anything about this. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a victim. So we, we can tend to have a home space in that. And the other thing that we need to be mindful of, particularly if we're in that rescuer where we kind of want to come in and rescue the situation, is whether the accountabilities that we're responding to are actually formal accountabilities in our role or they're informal ones that we've kind of taken on, not because we have to do them, but because somehow we feel we should. Now, these informal accountabilities alongside with carrying other people's water, i.e. saving the victim, these are the things that can really tip the balance in terms of us feeling overwhelmed. So uh, from that place of kind of feeling too much, one of the things that I invite people to think about in terms of what's mine to own is 
Am I carrying other people's water? So am I saving people, rescuing people, when actually it's theirs to own? And the second thing is, am I doing things that aren't actually a formal part of my responsibilities, but somehow I'm the one that empties all the bins at the end of the day? Like, how did I get that job? It's not in my position description. It's not in my, and that's a very simple example. But there are things that kind of tend to land with the most effective and efficient of us, you know, the saying is if you've got something to do, ask a busy person. I'm like, mm, okay, so how is it that we can kind of do an audit in terms of acknowledging what's ours to own, hand back the water to other people that's theirs to carry, and let go of the water that actually doesn't need to be carried by us. And perhaps when we don't carry it, it needs to be acknowledged as something that is a formal responsibility that needs to be covered somewhere within our team or our group. And as I'm listening to that, I can imagine listeners having a bit of discomfort around the fact of having to step back and really think about, is this my problem? Do I really own this? Or am I taking this problem on almost as a part of my identity to be that rescuer, to be that fixer, to be the knight in shining armour? That's right. And, And often we're in patterns of rescuing because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Right. And we and it comes from a good place. We're not doing it to go, oh, I want to feel fabulous about myself. We're doing it from a genuine place of wanting to help and serve and and support people. But in fact, we are disabling them in the long term because they're, they're not feeling what the full responsibility of their role is. And that's not helpful. It's unrealistic. And what can happen is over time, as we as we rescue and rescue and rescue, we can start to feel depleted, understandably, start to feel resentful. Yep, that makes sense too. And we move across then to the persecutor role because we start to feel like, no, this isn't fair. Like, why am I having to do this? Because, you know, it's actually not even mine. And so you can see how over time we kind of flick across from being a rescuer to actually being a persecutor. But in no way in either of those roles have we enabled someone who actually needs to step into what I call in the book the authoring role, where actually they are in choice around how much responsibility and accountability they lean into, they pick up, and they have to live with the consequences of the choices that they make around that. In your book, you mentioned this idea of choice points. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Love choice points. So this is the work of, oh, and their names of just ill. Let me talk about it and you'll probably come back as I talk about it. So we know that as we go through each day, we make decisions like moment to moment, you know, behind every decision is a question. So, you know, as the alarm went off this morning, Meg, I made a decision to turn it off and go back to sleep. And I didn't get up for half an hour. Now, most mornings, that's not my pattern. Most mornings, the alarm gets off and within two minutes, I'm out of bed. But, you know, behind each each action that we take is do I hit off or do I hit snooze? Or, you know, what, what's, what am I going to do with my alarm this morning? So throughout the day, as we respond to these subconscious questions, we have choice points. And what we can think about is as we make these choices, is each choice taking us towards who we want to be or is it taking us away from who we want to be? And so if we think about that in terms of accountability, once we've kind of done our work around our own it mindset and we're thinking about what's how can I show up with accountability as an act of love, 
then at each point, as we come to an accountability choice point, we've got some filters to think through in terms of, is this taking me towards accountability as an act of love? Is this taking me towards my own it mindset? Or is it actually taking me away? Is it taking me towards being a persecutor or being a rescuer? Is it actually moving me away from understanding the consequences of my actions? Is it actually taking me away from people understanding what's going on for me with accountability right now? So these choice points allow us to move towards who it is that we're wanting to show up as or away from. And once we kind of recognize that, okay, I'm at a choice point, then we can make some intentional decisions around what comes next. Now, choice points are agnostic. I've picked up this beautiful framework and I've used it as a way for us to understand how we might navigate our journey with accountability, but it can be used with any kind of change that you're looking to make. So beautiful in terms of thinking about well-being, beautiful in terms of thinking about making progress towards specific goals, but certainly really useful when we think about resetting accountability away from an act of war and towards an act of love. Yeah, I think it's so powerful and I've used it a lot with my clients thinking about these micro moments that have such a big impact. It could be, what are you going to do when that person that always comes to you to complain, what are you going to do? Because you know now it's predictable. They got That's what they want to do. They want to recreationally complain to you for the next 20 minutes. What choice are you going to make? Or that uncomfortable thing at a meeting where traditionally you would have talked about it with everybody else in your department and not mentioned it, what are you going to do in those moments? It's these micro moments of courage where accountability can really just amplify who we are and who we want to be. And it's so true. And and those, those choice point moments nudge things in a particular direction, right? And so if you, if in that conversation, rather than just listening, you say, hey, I think it'd be really great if you had this conversation directly with the person they're talking about in the meeting you know how wonderful to say I really feel that we need to have a discussion that I know has happened outside the meeting before here so how about we talk about whatever it is that normally goes on outside the meeting now you're right those are courage points right but they're also kind of lines in the sand in terms of nudging things in a way and opening things up and helping people see things that once seen can't be unseen. And so, you know, this is how culture changes in those micro moments, without a doubt. And that brings us that full circle of feeling like accountability is an act of love, Mm. to really be congruent with our values and hold ourselves at that higher regard instead of like, oh, well, I'll just complain because that's what everyone does or, I'll just go along with the status quo. It's really inviting us to move beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. I talk in the at the start of the book about how I believe that accountability is integrity in action. You know, very simply, it's saying what you'll do and doing what you say, right? That's basically it. And, and it doesn't have to be complex. It can be clean. It can be clear. It can be kind. And... It may feel like it needs to be courageous if what we're doing is clearing the fog. But as I speak to in the book, really what we're coming back to is who do we want to be? Who is it that we want to show up as day to day? Who is it that 
as we go to sleep at night, you know, can we really go to sleep and with a with a clean slate around what's happened in the day? And if we look at accountability and the conversations that we invite as being integrity in action, then I think it stops being something that we're using to get more out of people. That isn't what it's about. It's it's actually about ask inviting people into genuinely what's theirs to own and making sure they're not carrying more than that and making sure they are carrying what's appropriate. And it's being ready to have the conversations around where there is too much being carried and thinking about what might need to be let go of in order for us, for our people to feel well and do well and lead well. And I think that Another side of the accountability conversation is, are we doing the most important work? Are we doing the most strategically valuable work? And can we let go of any of this busy work? Because we know time and energy are our most precious resource. We're going to ask people to be accountable about how they are exerting that. Then we need to make sure, particularly in the role of a leader, that we are being as effective as we can in setting those responsibilities. Oh, Paige, you have given us so much to think about, and I hope it's inspired people to have a different relationship with accountability. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, I invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I am inspired by? I am inspired by the resilience and anti-fragility that I have seen in the education sector in Australia this year. I work with lots of principals, lots of senior leaders, and I know how tough it's been. And I have children who are at school. And so I'm seeing kind of both sides of that. And I'm inspired by how things have, what they've had, what the education sector has had to deal with is beyond anything other than I think healthcare in the last couple of years. So I'm inspired by their motivation, by their dedication. And I'm just so filled with gratitude and appreciation being a mother of two girls who are in senior school right now. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, do you know what? I, now, and then, and if you'd asked me this question a few years ago, I wouldn't have given the same answer. When life feels hard, I now am actually in appreciation. I feel gratitude for it because there is something that I either need to let go of because I'm too attached to it and that's why it feels hard or there's a learning for me in this that I am going to maybe not appreciate right now, but at some point in the future I will. So I'm kind of, I yield to life feeling hard. I didn't used to. I used to kind of push back against it. Why is this feeling hard? Whereas now I'm more curious about it, I guess. I'm more open. I'm like, okay, what's the learning in this for me? Why am I experiencing this right now? Or am I making this feel harder than it needs to by attaching to something, thinking that something should be one way even though it's turning up as another way for me right now. So that's what happens when life feels hard for me. (laughs) An underrated skill is? Ooh, being able to laugh at yourself. I reckon not being out, not taking yourself too seriously is an underrated skill, definitely, because if you can hold yourself lightly, it's much easier to get through life. (laughs) Without a doubt. And I am looking forward to... Oh, wow. I am looking forward to, well, something that's very immediate is I'm looking forward to going to Fiji at the end of the week because it's going to be warm and sunny. So that's fabulous. And it's cold in Victoria this winter. I am looking forward to writing my next book. 
So I know we're talking about this one, but I'm already researching my next book, which is going to be called Partnering a New Leadership Paradigm. And I'm super excited about what that's going to uncover for me in, in, in my learning journey. And I know it's going to make such a valuable contribution to understanding how we can lead differently in this complex world where power dynamics are changing and as they need to. And what does that mean for leaders? Yes, I cannot wait to read that book because it's such an interesting space. Thank you so much, Paige, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. Oh, that's such a joy to be with you, Meg. Thank you. I hope this conversation has got you thinking about your relationship with accountability. To learn more about Paige's incredible work in the world, visit her website, drpagewilliams.com. There you'll be able to order her books and read her latest blog. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you're enjoying the show, I would love it if you wrote a short review on iTunes or Spotify. It will only take a few minutes and it really does help to share the podcast with more listeners. Subscribe to my Thought of the Week newsletter to be the first to know about the details of my upcoming live event and to be in the running for one of my regular book giveaways. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 44. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.